0: Welcome, everyone, to Manufacturing Talk Radio. My name is Tim Grady. Manufacturing Talk Radio was recently invited to broadcast live from a very special conference that was held at MetLife Stadium where the New York Jets and the New York Giants play football. That was a conference called CFO Studio Innovation Conference for Chief Financial Officers. And a lot of great information was shared at that conference that we wanted you to hear, even though this is a pre-recorded show. We want to thank Andy Zizas, who is CEO of CFO Studio and also publisher of the CFO Studio Magazine, for graciously inviting us to broadcast live from this very special event. And now, the Chief Financial Officers from CFO Studio Innovation Conference in MetLife Stadium. Welcome to our listeners. We're here at uh, MetLife Stadium with the CFO Studio, which is an event taking place out at MetLife Stadium today, the home of where the Jets and the Giants play. Uh, my name is Tim Grady. I'm here with my co host, Lou Wise. This is Manufacturing Talk Radio. Lou, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing great and really learning a lot about uh, the CFO world and uh, also football. I've never been to MetLife Stadium. <laughs>
0: So we're gonna have dinner on the fifty yard line tonight. I hear that. You'll know what a fifty
1: yard line is. <laughs> yeah. The studio the studio the stadium doesn't really look all that big from the fifty yard line. I took a walk out there.
0: Yeah, it's surprising. It's surprising. You know, we have had several shows, Lou, and we've talked to folks who talked about onshoring, and reshoring, and yeah. near shoring and offshoring yeah, and shoring, shoring. Yeah, we've had we've had a <laughs> What we haven't had, and this is, this is going to be fun, we haven't had somebody on the show who never took it offshore in the first place. In other words, you can still manufacture in the United States, folks, put a fine product together and be competitively priced without having to source it all over the world. We have Chuck Epen with us today. Chuck, welcome to the show.
2: It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. And can you be profitable? You better believe it. Okay. Chuck,
0: give us a a quick idea of the company you're with now, and then I want to talk about the fact that that you didn't offshore to begin with, because this is a fascinating story.
2: Sure, sure. So maybe uh, I should start by saying, first of all, that the business that that I'm involved with now is primarily geared towards the professional development of uh, chief executives and business owners from a faith-based perspective. And that organization that I'm with today is called the C12 Group, or mm-hmm. America's largest professional development corporation, single-mindedly focused on the uh, the CEO of an entity. Uh, most of our client base, uh, you know, serves uh, businesses uh, in revenues from a few million dollars privately held to well over a couple of billion publicly traded. Um, but that's what I do today. To get me to here, though, I actually grew up in the electronics manufacturing and telecommunications world which as you both know is highly competitive sure. uh and when it comes to process efficiencies uh we do set the standard for that uh, by which automotive follows medical device equipment manufacturers follow mm-hmm. so we really were at the forefront of looking at this whole manufacturing you know problem how do you actually produce a product profitably from a perspective of high-grade best-in-class quality Mm -hmm. while still managing to maintain cost containment and not getting the cost of sales out of control. Um, With your perspective, uh, I'd like to kind of, um, with that perspective, I'd like to talk a little bit about, I I guess, maybe three areas that most manufacturers tend to gravitate towards when it comes to, hey, let's consider maybe offshoring something. Mm -hmm. And those three areas, uh, for myself and for many other manufacturers, Typically uh, revolve around uh, these. Number one, uh, there's some type of a cost reduction imperative. Uh, they're basically trying to get their cost of sales down. The second is that there's some type of a process efficiency that they hope to gain as a result of offshoring, nearshoring, you know, things of that nature. And then thirdly, there may or may not be some type of a uh, competitive advantage by way of. Uh, some kind of synergistic distribution channel alright so mm-hmm. if you can somehow uh... tap into those three areas then the notion of doing some type of offshoring solution and i use that with quotations it's anything that involves manufacturing processes outside the united states then offshoring with that definition potentially makes some sense however uh, as a as an american manufacturer we had our plants in san diego california uh we sold to some of the largest telecommunications companies in the world namely Nokia Siemens Alcatel Lucent i mean you name it we probably sold to them in many ways we were the uh, telecommunications companies outsource manufacturing partner because frankly if they could do it themselves they would have but they did not have uh the either the cost containment or you know these three areas that they could somehow leverage so they came to us uh, long story short i did a fair amount of travels throughout the united states Trying to see if there was a way to relocate a plant uh, for 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 those uh, three areas, I did go overseas. We looked at Maciados in, in Tijuana, Mexico, which which of course is right across the street from San Diego. Right, it made a lot of sense potentially uh, on paper that hey maybe there was something we could do. What we found though was that quite the opposite um at least for us in that uh day and time what we what we learned was that there were a lot of challenges number 1 and i'll and i'll kind of go through the my pareto chart if you will and and maybe your listening audience can identify with some of these too number 1 the issue of the 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 environment was a big issue uh, for us and by environment i don't mean just the you know epa type of stuff i'm talking about government oversight regulatory compliance issues all right okay we take a lot for granted here in the united states uh, and though everybody you know has their favorite opinion about the epa and osha and all that other stuff the reality is some of that governmental oversight does help um, to ensure a good quality product by taking care of people, maintaining their health, standards of work, you know, safety, those types of things. They do have value. You go somewhere else; those things aren't necessarily in place, or if they are, they're not well defined. Mm-hmm. So that becomes an issue in terms of of cost containment and quality output. The second thing that we we learned was that. While we have a a particular culture to our entity, that same culture, its core values, its mission statement, is not necessarily shared by that outsourced partner. So while uh we may value for example uh certain things regarding you know integrity we, for example we have laws in the United States the foreign anti-corruption act you can't take bribes for example and call it a marketing expense right <laughs> all right well guess what that my friends in China don't work that way so so uh, trying to understand culturally what that fit is is a real challenge and for for frankly for most american companies even today that still becomes quite an obstacle to overcome it's not easy to deal with that what year were you doing this uh
1: the, this with, with this enterprise Mex, mexico
2: yeah this was uh i would say from the early 1990s through the mid 2000s so i would say probably within the last 8 to 10 years is is when this was going are,
1: are you hearing uh that there are any changes happening down in mexico now
2: there are now. Uh, I mean, you hear, you heard, I'm sure, about the, uh, the the accidents that occurred in the in the South Asian uh, peninsula with buildings collapsing and people dying in, in uh, you know textile mills and factories and things like that. So, there is uh, definitely a change of foot. But but here's the reality: like most legislation and changes, they happen as a result of crisis and so one of the things that that you if you have the stomach for it you have to be prepared to walk through crisis events like that and still maintain a corporation mm-hmm. producing good quality product taking care of your customers and now you've got to deal with that again if you have the stomach for it that's fine we hear that uh... the
1: aerospace industry out of california is uh... Heading south of the border uh, and uh, obviously there's high quality and what I understand is that there a lot of American management is now moving there to uh, supervise and, and, and uh, overview uh, what goes on in Mexican manufacturing. As a matter of fact, I think they just had a show in San Diego uh, called uh, Mexico Aerospace. Um, and uh, they're looking to bring more of that business down there. So I think there probably have been some significant changes uh, going on in Mexico.
2: I, I think that in general, depending on the complexity of the manufacturing operation, yes. I mean, clearly, Mexico has been the hotbed for what we called simple electronics. Mm-hmm. So, if it was basically uh, some wire jockeying, manual laboring with soldering, and things of that nature, uh, that, that was the first foray for Mexican electronics manufacturing. Then came the robots, which tried to improve the issues of, of uh, product reliability and repeatability and that made a big milestone the, mm-hmm. and a change it particularly and that was heralded primarily by the cell phone manufacturers mm-hmm. they wanted to find a way to to produce essentially a commodity uh for dirt cheap okay now the fact that aerospace is going down there I think that's wonderful if they can continue to maintain good quality control and Mm -hmm. oversight but but again let me let me just back up on on something here those three points about the 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 environment being a big consideration right the Mm -hmm. governmental oversight is a big deal we do not have the same kind of laws to protect industry uh, the the workers and such if you compare the United States to Mexico even today so that that has not really changed the second item has a lot to do with the organizational health and the shared values, the mission, the, clu- the culture, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, when, when something goes wrong with our customer base here, we are very quick to you know, jump on the wagon, figure out what happened, uh, assign a project team, get the deliverables, get a deadline, get it solved. Right? Mm-hmm. That culture is a little different. Admittedly, yeah. even between Western countries, between the United States and, say, for example, Western Europe, the, the same perspective isn't, isn't uh, shared. And then finally, there's this issue of continuous improvement. Um, it's proximity that makes for process improvements. Again, if, if those three things can be addressed adequately, you know, perhaps uh, an offshoring, near-shoring you know, model makes mm-hmm. sense. But for us, we found that uh, when we looked at those constraints, it just didn't work.
0: Well, that's exciting that an American manufacturer came to the conclusion that they didn't have to offshore, they didn't have to nearshore, they could still do it here, they could still do it competitively, and Chuck, we appreciate having you on the show to share that message, because I think that's a direction that a lot of manufacturers
2: need to be looking,
0: and understand that, you know, there's somebody out there who did it. It does still work here in America.
2: Yes, yes. You know, it's the irony is that even the Japanese auto manufacturers, uh, Subaru, they still have plants in Indiana, so mm-hmm. <laughs> we must yep. be doing something right. <laughs> right. And you're exactly right. Lou, you brought
0: that up recently, and he and I, Lou and I were just chatting, and Lou said, you know, that the, the Japanese auto manufacturers uh, imported cars here for years, and then they started building plants here, and now the plants are almost disassociated with, japan management style they're american management style there you go there so it still works chuck thank yeah. you for being on the show we appreciate you being here at uh, manufacturing talk radio at this event at cfo studio in, uh, in metlife stadium thank you
2: tim Lu. thank you very much thank you very much thank you
0: and we'll be right back with manufacturing talk radio after this brief commercial break
3: welcome back to manufacturing talk radio
0: Welcome everyone to Manufacturing Talk Radio. We are back. Uh, I'm here with my co-host Lou Weiss. Uh, Lou's company, All Metals and Forge Group, is the sponsor of Manufacturing Talk Radio. Lou, we appreciate that over all the years. Thank, thank you, thank you. It, it's been uh, it's been fun to do the show, and it's also nice to have a a sponsor of the show, or we would uh, be in terrible trouble. Um, we are talking to you folks from CFO Studio, which is hosting an event out at MetLife Stadium in Secaucus, New Jersey where the Jets and the Giants play football on Sunday in the NFL. And we have with us Mark Bednarz. Mark is a CPA, CISA, CFE. I'm going to let him explain all that from O'Connor Davies. Mark, welcome to the show.
4: Thank you very much for inviting me. Uh, CPA, obviously, certified public accountant. Uh, CISA is certified information systems auditor, and CFE is certified fraud examiner. So I have a healthy mix of both business and IT experience.
0: Now, Mark uh, O'Connor Davies, what does the firm do, and what's your focus?
4: Yeah, so we're the 30th largest accounting firm, and we offer accounting, tax, and advisory services. So my focus as being a partner in the group, uh, I focus on risk management, business process reengineering, uh, IT services. So those are some of the key areas that I focus on.
0: Now, it's interesting to me that, uh, you know, your CPA firm used to just do your taxes now they look much deeper into your organization to try to help you gain efficiencies as you're rolling through the year they're not just with you from january to april fifteenth is that right?
4: you're absolutely right you know the idea here is to be more of a uh... trusted advisor for your for your clients right because there's a lot of risks out there there's a lot of compliance requirements uh... accounting changes business changes all the time
0: and what kind of risks are you seeing out there as you uh... Uh, work with your clients that maybe they're not aware of that they should be aware of, whether they're in manufacturing or some other business?
4: Yeah, so the two top risks that are the big buzzwords now are cybersecurity or cyber attacks and third party risk management. I'll start off with the second one third party risk management. You know, a lot of organizations, especially manufacturing, are looking to outsource certain functions to third parties, either for cost savings and to also focus on some of their core competencies, Okay. So that's big areas. Okay. And then on regards to cybersecurity, everybody's vulnerable to a cyber attack. So what do organizations have in place to ensure that they have the right governance in place, the right response? Uh, And the biggest thing right now is the employees. Employees are now going to different websites, and these are concerns that organizations have Because as they go to certain websites, they may be prone with uh, malicious software out there that might uh, get into your corporate environment. And especially with organizations going internationally now and servicing all these clients and dealing with your suppliers, you want to make sure you have the right securities in place.
0: Now, I know that we've had a a show on uh, cybersecurity, and we're probably going to have another show on cybersecurity. It's an important topic, and the reason it is, is that the small and mid-sized manufacturers are the ones who are probably the most vulnerable the big guys are on top of it and they've got you know the systems in place and the processes in place and the small and mid-sized guys probably are saying to themselves ah we're not that big a risk but in fact they're one of the biggest targets are they not?
4: Absolutely because if your door is open people are going to come on in and what I'm referring to whether it's uh... you know your firewalls are not properly protected your employees are not properly trained to understand what to open what not to open, really opens the door. And basically, there's people out there just casting a large web, almost like what they call dynamite fishing, where they'll throw it (laughs) out there and see who's going to get tagged.
1: (laughs) I'm not so sure that the large corporations really are on top of their cybersecurity. you know, with all the credit card companies, and, some have been uh, hit—that's for uh, sure. WalMarts and Sony, and so on. So, uh, we could tell you stories. Of, uh, recently, <laughs> yeah. of, uh, at a show that we were at, where th- there was hacking going on with the uh, internet connection at the show that we were at, and it was presented by a cybersecurity company, and they were hacked. So, so much for security.
4: And a lot of times it's not actually internal, it's actually external. You're an mm-hmm. outsourced provider. So, two New Jersey universities just got hit by a dial service attack. And so, these are big universities. And, again, they're utilizing a third party. Now, if their security is not as good as the universities, in this case, uh, you know, they are prone to its attack as well. Mm-hmm.
0: And it's fascinating how some of these people uh, get into the systems. Uh, Lou and I were doing a show where we had the example given to us that they got into this one company through their third-party management of their HVAC, their air conditioning and heating and ventilation system software. They found a weakness to that. They penetrated that, got from that server into the corporate server, and then did their dastardly deeds from there. So they could come to you from any possible direction. Absolutely. Um, again,
4: today also people also concerned about intellectual property, and you want to make sure your servers are uh, you know properly secured to make sure nobody steals your intellectual property.:
0: And is that uh, a concern uh, that you're seeing in, in all market verticals, uh, from the smallest guy up to the largest corporation, that their IP is in fact very vulnerable.
4: Absolutely, We're seeing from the small companies to the large organizations. Obviously, the larger the organization, the more complex it is. Uh, so, again, that's why we're seeing a lot of smaller manufacturing firms, uh, companies going and getting the cybersecurity uh, governance programs in place and doing vulnerability assessments and having somebody do that for them to saying, let's just do a health check. Of our IT systems, it doesn't cost a lot of money, but it gives you a good understanding, the reaction time, and the vulnerabilities that exist in your organization.
1: One of the things that we discovered on our own by the show that we did do for cybersecurity, and the name of the show was "Cybersecurity: Is It Possible?" And by the end of the show, for me anyway, I determined that cybersecurity is not possible, because as soon as you think you're covered and you're taken care of. Uh, things have moved on. Hackers have moved on. They've learned a new way. And uh, it's something that companies have to be continually uh, monitoring, changing, and improving, even the l- small companies. You cannot believe that you are safe.
4: Yeah, I agree with that. And what we tell a lot of our smaller clients is it's not about carpet bombing and having all the ty- all, uh, address all types of risks that may security risk. It's all focused about doing a risk assessment, seeing what are some of your bigger vulnerabilities and addressing that. And it's not an annual event. It's something that should be happening constantly throughout time. So you, and you evaluate and you share that information across the industry as well and see what some of your competitors uh, are doing as well in this space.
0: Now, Mark, uh, for the moment, uh, if I'm the company owner and you're the CPA coming in to try to talk to me about cybersecurity, my comment back to you, and I'm sure you've heard it, is, Mark, this isn't making me any money. Why do I need to invest in this cybersecurity stuff?
4: Yeah, well, absolutely. Uh, It may not be making you money, but we're looking here from a cost savings perspective. You know, if you are vulnerable and you are attacked, it may take down your network which may cause you to lose business. Your reputation's also at stake. These are two key areas. Even though they, they tend to be a little bit soft, one, reputational relates to be more of a soft cost, whether, like in the case of the two universities, denial of service. How long are you gonna be down and not servicing your clients? And if your clients mm-hmm. are not happy and not being serviced, they may be going to a competitor.
0: So, the next issue that popped into my head, if I'm the client and you've convinced me that, okay, now I need to do cybersecurity, do I look to uh, O'Connor Davies to help me find uh, what kind of software I should use and what kind of company I should use?
4: Absolutely. Well, first things first, we always say let's develop a cybersecurity governance framework. That's going to be the glue that keeps everything together. Like we were just talking about, it's not a one time event. Uh, the next thing that we would do is once we develop the governance structure, the response, perform a risk man- uh, risk assessment that you guys are going to constantly update, uh, the next thing is we talk about tools. And we want to make sure that you have the right tools in place. So there's triggers, alerts, people reviewing logs, these are key things that you need to address as soon as you see a potential event. Um, so And then obviously doing a vulnerability assessment, which is a great health check to see do you have the right software in place um, and whether you have ports that are open that shouldn't be. These are all things that are critical in developing the entire program for everything to work.
0: Okay, and now if I'm sitting here and I've got that in place, but I take a hit anyways because, as Lou said, it's nothing bulletproof. So I take a hit and I've had a cyber attack. Is there in the in the plan, how I recover? Absolutely.
4: So knowing your IT department, uh, they will know exactly what type of data has been touched. Uh, They'll also know how to respond to each specific issue and close the loop. And if it should happen again, you're actually going back and doing more forensic work and saying, okay, I patched something. Was that exactly where they hit me again? So you're also learning through this entire process, and you should be sharing it within the industry, this information, with your partners, so they can make these changes as well.
1: Well, Mark, I'm, I'm a 25-man machine shop, and uh, I don't have the luxury of having an IT department. I have uh, my partner's 18-year-old grandson who fills in as IT uh, based on the new software we put in and all of the new securities. Um, I have a different issue because we can't stay on top of things to the same degree Sony might. And they're probably still fixing the last mess up that they went through. So how, how do we deal with that for the smaller, uh, the smaller companies, the 25 to fifty man companies?
4: Sure. Where there's products out there and services such as what they call security as a service.
2: Mm-hmm. So
4: you can actually utilize... Other organizations to monitor everything for you ah
1: very interesting like like an ASP
4: yeah absolutely
0: that's the first time we've heard security as a service that's a great term yeah, SAS right
4: you see software as a service now security as a service backup as a service so a lot of organizations that we see are looking to save costs and utilize specialists in those industries.
0: Yes, as Lou said, you certainly can, as a smaller even mid-sized business, afford to hire this whole group of people that you need, and you're not sure when you hired them do you have the right expertise in place. And, oh, by the way, the technology just changed, and you need to fire the guys you hired and go find some new ones. <laughs> so very, very challenging. Uh, Mark, if someone wants to get a hold of your company, where do they go? What's your website address?
4: Yeah, so it's www. O'Connor, Davies. Uh, odpkf.com.
0: Okay, great. Uh, We certainly appreciated having you on the show and talking about these really important issues. You're here at CFO Studio out at MetLife Stadium to to learn a little, to share a little, and we thank you for being on Manufacturing Talk Radio. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.
4: And uh,
0: that will wrap us up today for Manufacturing Talk Radio. We'll be back uh, next week with our our show on each Tuesday um, at 1 o'clock Eastern Time. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll talk to you again soon. Welcome everyone to Manufacturing Talk Radio. We are broadcasting today from MetLife Stadium. We've been invited to cover a very special conference they're having at MetLife Stadium called CFO Studio. Uh, we had on a uh, the, the president of the publisher and founder, uh, Andy Zizis of uh, CFO Studio. I'm here with my co-host, Lou Wise, who's uh, always on the show. He is one of our show sponsors. Lou, how are you today?
1: I'm doing great. Thank you. And uh, it's really fun to be here at uh, MetLife Stadium in uh, uh, Secaucus, New Jersey, or is it Rutherford?
0: I think it's Secaucus, and for those who are not familiar with the facility, this is where the Jets and the Giants play.
1: So we're in a big football stadium. That's where we are. (laughs) I think we're even going to see some of them today.
0: Yes, we may. And uh, we're having uh, dinner this evening out in the 50-yard line. We have a very special guest with us today, uh, Timothy Englem, who is founder and president of Yes CFO, which is kind of an unusual company, and we're kind of excited to talk to Tim about not just the company, but what he does with that company. So, Tim, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thank you. Tim, Yes CFO, give our listeners a description of what that is, because I think that's a, an exciting approach to being a CFO for a company.
3: Yes, uh, we fill a market void where the small to medium-sized companies who, who for one reason or another, can't afford, they're growing, or they're family-owned and don't want an outsider as a full-time CFO, and a six-figure salary and mm-hmm. benefit package has to go along with that, but they still have CFO-level problems. So we serve in an outsource basis on, a, on an on-demand or fractional basis uh, to a number of clients, and, and we're several, several professionals strong. And uh, we go in there and help them either with their banking relationships or their internal management issues, cash flow issues, uh, uh, maybe assess a, uh, a new software package for them, how to develop the, the, the whole spec for how they go out and talk to an Oracle, like, which is one of the sponsors here, as, uh, as well as others, mm-hmm. and to uh, serve as their, their, uh, their source of another opinion and, and help them better manage what they're trying to do.
0: Well, it's very exciting because you bring to them uh, the opportunity to be able to afford that CFO expertise. And also, you look through all of the facets of a prism, not just one, which they may look through. So, correct, correct. Yeah. Now, I understand you're, you're widely recognized for your crisis management expertise. Give
3: me a feel for crisis management as a CFO. It was a crisis in my career back in 1990 more or less and I I was unfortunately uh, I had already been downsized by Phillips late in the 80's because they sold off the division where I was controller but uh, came to work in a private uh, company business and uh, two years later they sold it but they sold it to the wrong people let's put it that way to put it Mm -hmm. nicely it was basically financial games and so within six months here I was trying to find out a way to make the thing survive that had been around for 30 years uh, and these people were basically running it into the ground for the cash uh, so so that, that career event was my crisis. I had no idea what I was doing. I luckily had some good people to work with, the people I was actually working for at the original company. Mm-hmm. Plus, we brought in some professional staff that taught me a few things, and I went through my first LBO and my first prepackaged bankruptcy all within about 18 months. Oh. <laughs> so, So I learned all about those things, and from there... Well, you know, you do one, people call you to do another. And so, so that became a career of uh, crisis management, if you will. Uh-huh. And, uh, uh, it, it's, it's a pretty broad segment of the accounting and the legal professions. There are, there are lots of specialists in those areas, uh, not just in a bankruptcy area. And that, that itself is a specialty that I don't deal in often. Uh, I deal with companies trying to keep them out of that, that realm. <laughs>
0: that's right. That's, and, that's what i supposed to do. <laughs> yeah,
3: I, I've gone through a pre pre packaged or a pre-negotiated uh, bankruptcy twice, both times the company survived. So that was enough. I don't need to do another one of those. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, those are uh, pretty good odds. Uh, yeah, yeah, batting 1,000. <laughs> but I uh, only had two at-bats on that realm, so that's okay. Uh, it's like getting up to the majors in the... Uh, After Labor Day and, uh, you know, spending a few days on the the big league payroll.
1: (laughs) If if I'm not mistaken, it's usually only one in ten that survive a bankruptcy. Is that not true?
3: Yeah, but those numbers are skewed a little bit because uh, Chapter 11, just to give you a little background on that, Chapter 11, people go into voluntarily. Mm -hmm. Uh, Chapter 7 is the liquidation side when you're talking about businesses. And uh, Chapter 7, if a company doesn't get out of it right away or convert to an 11, they're they're going to liquidate. So, So what happens is companies that are in trouble go into bankruptcy. It, it it's they don't it, that's a reorganization chapter, but they never come out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's not because they didn't do the right things going in, but because uh, not only do they have to find a way to restructure the company, but it costs an awful lot of money—legal expense, accounting fees—to uh, to go through a bankruptcy. So you'd have to have some pot of cash to do it, which is kind of contradictory in terms. Yes,
0: right, uh, yeah. you're in
3: bankruptcy. Like, yeah, I don't have cash. So that becomes an issue, and that, that sometimes. Uh, that sometimes invites a little bit of fraudulent activity prior to getting in there, mm. like don't pay anybody for a couple of weeks or a couple of months until you accumulate enough to get you through six months.
0: Ah. Uh, so. And you're doing a presentation here at the CFO Studio event at MetLife called Crime Doesn't Pay. Give our listeners a sense of what that presentation
3: is all about, if you know, if you don't let yes, off the no, no, not steal problem your all. own thunder. Th- this is a... Uh, a an event for CFOs. And we're professional CFOs, but uh, in addition to being a CPA and a CFO, professional CFO, I'm also a certified fraud examiner, which uh, grew out of dealing with companies that did a lot of stupid things. And when people are in crisis situations, sometimes they cross those lines. Mm-hmm. Sometimes people have crossed those lines, and that's what caused the problem in the first place, like somebody embezzling money. So, So the concept today is to talk to CFOs about Number one, to recognize some of the signs of what could happen. But, but not only that, it may not ever happen to them, but the odds are pretty good that somewhere in their 30- or 40-year career they're going to come across it to, to understand how to deal with it when it does happen, what to do, even where we even get some advice about what not to do, mm-hmm. uh, not in a very detailed level, but, but to give them a flavor of the kinds of things to expect, and to also talk to them about a couple of legal distinctions between Let's say a civil fraud issue, like the SEC wants their money back, or they want you to give back that insider trading information, as opposed to the Department of Justice saying we're going to prosecute that guy, which is criminal. Which Mm -hmm. means you know, you know, the Enron guys—they went to jail. Yeah, they sure did. I mean, Ken Lay died before they got there, but uh, you know, he locked (laughs) up. Yeah, well, you know, he's uh, in—I think he's in a prison of his own somewhere. Yeah, yeah.
0: So, well, well, this is. uh uh, certainly, a, a terrific event. I guess there's something like 400 CFOs here.
3: I think there's about that many registered. There's still coming in. It's a long day, so I imagine some people come in around lunchtime too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, is there anything else? You say you're a certified fraud investigator, examiner, uh, certified examiner. fraud examiner. Yes. Uh, explain a little bit about what what you do there. Well, uh, let's say I'm the CFO of a company, and I realize that uh, um, one of my uh, purchasing managers was getting a kickback, was accused of getting a kickback, because that's hard to prove. You know, someone has to volunteer that normally. Right. Uh, how do I deal with that? Well, first of all, we haven't approached the man yet. So, so you have to understand some of the things to, to, to go forward to do. Uh, you may need to speak to your corporate counsel or in-house counsel or your, your external corporate counsel mm-hmm. to discuss what are the next steps, how to go about it. Do you hire somebody to now recreate or in a forensic way, you know, try and go through and reconstruct what took place. Uh, how was this person hurting the company? I mean, it has to be some financial uh, loss at the company for it to be a fraud, right? a legal fraud. Uh, somebody had to lose money, usually. Uh, so, uh, and, and there are things along the computer side of it that requires a forensic IT expert, computer expert. Uh, there are lots of assumptions that people make, well, just turn the computer off. No, that's a bad thing. Don't turn that darn thing off because turning it off, you will lose temporary files. Mm-hmm. So you want to control it, but you want to control it in the right way. So, on the on the forensic side, on the computer side, on the forensic accounting side, and then dealing with an investigation, uh, there's relationships that you're all familiar with, attorney-client privilege, for instance. Right. The way we work on behalf of the firm, if we're working on behalf of the attorney, on behalf of the firm, that evidence is then the gathering of information could be considered uh, restricted uh, client-attorney privilege. So so there could be a t- attorney-client work product, a bunch of things like that that are more technical than uh, somebody who's a CPA who's done a lot of auditing would come in and just go through the books and give you a report. Okay. Tim, are there any liabilities to the employer
0: when they're investigating potentially an employee fraud? Good Th-
3: question. They're not aware of. Yeah, they're usually not aware of <laughs> uh, if they have a, if they have in-house sort, or they have a close relationship with their corporate counsel, uh, there are lots of things they can tell them. Uh, not the least of which is, uh, it's not always easy to prove that somebody did something, even though you may know it in your heart. And you don't have the hard proof to get them in court, but you, you are definitely going to relieve them of their job duties. Mm-hmm. Uh, wrongful termination suits can happen, uh, so you better have your, you know, your ducks in order. You could have a whistleblower statute issue because that person could still to say that you were fired for some stupid reason that uh, unrelated to the fraud that uh, you were trying to tell them that uh, they're losing money somewhere and no one listened to you, and you. You became a gadfly, and they decided to get rid of you. Well, that could be a protected class of employee that could sue. Mm-hmm. So
1: what yeah. happens? What happens in a situation where your employee is under contract? and uh, is yeah, they now clause, accused of but, yeah.
3: fraud. Now they, they, tend, they tend to terminate the contract automatically if you're convicted of something nefarious. Uh, you may have to pay damages that may be in there. I mean, yeah. that's why you have lawyers. They'll, they'll tell you that employment law is a practice area for, for lawyers. They'll tell you that aspect of it, whether or not you really do have to uh, uh, compensate a person that's going out the door who already enriched themselves at your behalf. Mm-hmm. Uh, but... Uh, if you've got the goods on the person, it's not likely they're going to be able to honor that contract. Uh, It's the question of where you're just letting them go because you're not sure, but you're not going to take a chance. And and then that contract would still be in force. Okay.
0: Let's talk manufacturing for a moment because we're manufacturing talk radio.
3: You've had some dealings
0: in manufacturing. and, And one of the questions in the United States is, is manufacturing growing, expanding, contracting, staying level, and regardless, almost, of what it's doing, how is it replacing the gray hairs who are tiring out with the millennials who are coming in? Now,
3: your... I think that's a two-part question. Okay. Uh, I think if you measure it based on uh, the amount of the gross domestic product that comes from the manufacturing sector in this country, I don't think it's ever stopped growing. Okay. I still believe it's still higher than it's ever been. I'm sure there are... Uh, dips when the economy tanks a little,
2: mm-hmm.
3: but uh, the overall trend, I think, is still growing. Uh, what has changed is how many jobs are in that industry and where those jobs are. Uh, and uh, as an anecdotal indicator of that, I mean, years ago, I had a cost accounting background and there's a healthy manufacturing industry in the Northeast, but a lot has changed over the past couple of decades. And, and I see it in the client base, the way it shipped to here, too. Uh, and we have manufacturing clients here, but they tend to be smaller. They're not the larger companies anymore. Right. So uh, Brooklyn, look at Brooklyn. Brooklyn was a manufacturing center that beat the band. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's all warehousing. It's, it's becoming lofts. Uh, lots of things have changed. Right. Uh, so uh, you see that all over the metropolitan area, and it's true also in other northeastern areas. So, so I think you may have some corporate headquarters still here. It may be a, a venture-backed or a PE-backed. Private equity-backed firm from New York that owns it, but the firm actually doing the work is in Kansas. Uh, okay, sure. Yeah, sure. so that they don't they don't look for their investments geographically. They, that's, that's where the money center may be, but that's not where they're uh, they're working out of.
0: Right, yeah. right.
3: And the same thing with the the West Coast, the uh, backed uh, backed people. It's not just high tech. It's all kinds of manufacturing. They're still alive and well. And uh, I guess as labor rates keep rising in China and other third world places, uh, a lot of that stuff will start to come back anyhow. Okay. Okay. And if you put a machine in place of something, it doesn't matter where you put it. The raw materials are the same no matter where you do it. Uh, very true. Very true.
0: Uh, and in terms of employee base, uh, from the CFO's perspective, do you see a challenge coming up in the manufacturing industry for employees? Yeah,
3: Yeah, both at the technical level and at the financial level where they have manufacturing accounting experience over quote-unquote cost accounting experience. Uh, it's 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 not as common in this area as it used to be. Uh, and most, if well, right now, we are actually trying to place a controller in a very good manufacturing company. But uh, it's going to be a hard tack because anybody with the kind of background we're looking for is probably gainfully employed. Hmm.
0: So there's that big a shortage for cost accountants. Yeah,
3: yeah, the jobs went away, but so people are not going into it. Uh it's like being a last shoe shine guy on the block. Yeah, you know, it's you know, <laughs> yeah it it's yeah, you could still make money doing it. Go to a Hilton or any other hotel and a shoe shine guy makes a ton. Right. But uh, do you aspire to do that? <laughs> yeah. you didn't get that four year college degree, uh <laughs> Yeah, that's very true. <laughs> but I bet you somebody's still making buggy whips somewhere. So Well know, there probably is probably <laughs> right. in China. That's oh, right. Funny thing about China. I read the other day, a couple of months ago, that there's an American supplier of chopsticks. Oh, yeah. Because the, the actual wood that they make that from, I don't, I don't think it's bamboo. I don't it's know what bamboo. They, is it bamboo? Yeah, it is bamboo. Well, whatever it is, they, not, they don't have enough of it over they're there. That's correct. Yeah. <laughs> Go figure. Maybe the pandas. So screen. now they're making know.
1: plastic and uh, so on.
3: Well, yeah. There's a guy, Midwest, I think he is. And uh, you can look it up. You probably can Google yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. American chopsticks. He's exporting to Asia. Honestly, God.
0: Uh, now, one of the things that I know that manufacturers are experiencing in the marketplace is what they call the millennial generation. They're a very anxious, capable generation uh, that wants to uh, you know, get their teeth into exciting stuff in business. Um, but they always want to learn something new, have that new challenge. So they, they're, they're moving fairly frequently either within a corporation or from job to corporation to corporation. Are you seeing that as well as a challenge?
3: no not not really because we're not dealing with large corporate staffs at our end uh most organizations we deal with are pretty flat uh i see what you what you're talking about i see it in the media but i, I don't firsthand we don't anymore okay uh it, indirectly we do because those folks we just talked about that are not going going into really uh you know Bricks and mortar or nuts and bolts type jobs like the mm-hmm. County. Mm-hmm. Well, they're not even going into accounting per se. I mean, there are lots of people who would go into this years ago, go into it because of different reasons. Uh, not every accounting grad today is a is a CPA coming out. They they take different routes. So uh, yeah, there are people that change careers, and, and accounting's not it's not immune to that. Okay,
0: uh, Tim, we would be remiss if we uh, didn't share with our listeners how to get
3: a hold of Yes CFO. One 636 or eight six six fraud CPA. And you have a website they can go to? YesCFO.com. dot com. Oh, see, you have CFO dot com? Yes, I do. Oh my god, <laughs> that's remarkable. No, not CFO. Yes CFO dot com. Ah. Yes CFO dot CFO dot com is uh, a bunch of people. <laughs> they, they publish magazines. Yes. Uh,
0: Tim, thank you for joining us on the Manufacturing Talk Radio. We certainly appreciate having you here, and we're thrilled to be at CFO Studio, where you're also appearing and you're a presenter. We appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you, and uh, get
3: to yes. Thank you very much.
0: We're going to take a uh, quick commercial break, and we'll be right back with Manufacturing Talk Radio.
3: Welcome back to Manufacturing Talk Radio.
0: Uh, Welcome, everyone, back to uh, Manufacturing Talk Radio. We are here at MetLife Stadium. We are talking to uh, some of the CFOs who are here at a function called CFO Studio. This is a uh, really exciting venue to have. it. This is where the Jets and the Giants play, and even the uh, CFO, I believe the Jets, is speaking uh, at this session uh, later today. But right now we have uh, Vincent Tuzio from SamaServe with us. He is uh, Chief Financial Officer. And Vincent's been involved in a lot of different types of businesses. Probably the two most exciting are are startups and uh, um, what do you call the other one? Turnarounds. Uh, Turnarounds. Uh, um, Why don't you give us a little bit of your history, uh, Vincent, and then let's talk about startups because, you know, Everybody in the in the world has got an idea for oh oh I got an idea for a business oh no absolutely and, and no uh, it's true I, I'd love to hear your comments on it but please share a little bit about Sam and your background
5: well a little bit about my background uh, I was a, a partner in an accounting firm for about fifteen years mm-hmm. and then one of my clients made me a fabulous offer so I decided to get a chance to see my kids grow up and. And and be the uh, coach dad and do all those great things that you like to do with your kids. And I worked uh, and expanded my clients' operations internationally to about $50 million. And then we took him to overseas as well. So I had a nice run with him and then decided to get out on my own and then do some uh, consulting. And today uh, I am involved in a brand-new startup. It's a technology company, and the company name is uh, Samuserv, and it's located in Ramsey, New
1: Jersey.
0: Oh, okay. Uh, up in your neck of the woods, Lou. Yeah,
1: that's where I, where I hang my hat. Ah,
0: that's it's a great right. area. Let's talk about startups for a moment because, as I said, everybody's got an idea for a business. Uh, there was a recent survey done that said 70% of the employees in the United States really wish they were doing their own thing. So they're in jobs, but they're not very happy there, obviously. Uh, let's kind of walk through what they should be aware of if they're going to do a startup.
5: Well, i got to tell you, there are so many pitfalls in doing a startup, <laughs> as I'm sure you're well aware, you know. but really right now, I, I, as I see it, the keys for a successful startup, uh, you have to have the right team, obviously, uh, and hopefully a group of guys or girls that have worked together before, and there's some synergy. You have to have a great technology. You really have to have an innovative product or an idea to really get out there and make a difference. Timing, you know, you have to have the right timing in the marketplace to get out with your product. And you have to have tenacity. You just basically can't give up. You know, when you take a look at a startup company, you want to really take a look at the marketplace. Make sure that you have a viable product. And how can it make a difference in the
0: marketplace?
5: How can you make a difference in the marketplace? Mm -hmm. So you really have to understand understand those things very well.
0: Now, that is typically some... Uh, Of the failure points is people come up with a great idea but they don't really test it in the marketplace they just leap into it and suddenly they're they're uh, hemorrhaging money
5: well no this is true and you know what winds up happening as well and I've seen it uh, more times than not if you don't surround yourself with the right people from the very beginning you have a greater tendency to fail whether it's your in-house people or whether it is your outside consultants that you hire uh, and bring aboard, mm-hmm. because the, obviously you can't start a business without the proper financing, whether it's uh, angel financing or whether it's venture capital. And you really need the right strategic partner. And that's basically what I'm doing right now is I put together an executive summary and the business plan and all the typical financials and projections that you need. But really what's key is making sure that you find that right partner uh, who understands the business and can assist in your growth.
0: Vincent, in my experience in talking with uh, different business owners, I run across this scenario where where if you ask them if they have a business plan, they're working on the business plan, but they're really writing it from executive summary all the way through the, the financials instead of from the financials up through the document to end at the executive summary. Isn't the reverse course the best course?
5: Well, you know what, you want to start out with a solid product first and and test your product to make sure that it's got viability in the marketplace. And yeah, you are right. You want to then go directly to the financials and make sure you have a a proven revenue model. You want to know that you're going to generate income, when you're going to generate income, uh, when you're going to have positive cash flow, Mm -hmm. and how much money you're actually going to wind up needing to get the venture off of the ground. So the financials are really uh, a big key to the success of the whole process. And then, obviously, the executive summary is equally as important.
0: Okay. Um, Vincent, I I want to uh, kind of revisit and uh, keep your card on file. I'd like to have you back on another show. I would like to delve into this a little more deeply. There's a lot of uh, this need out in the marketplace, and there's a lot of great subject matter here in terms of dealing with startups, whether it's in manufacturing or just in business in general. So I I want to revisit this uh, with you uh in uh, probably another uh, 45 60 days and get you back on the show for a little longer period of time you've got too much knowledge to do this in 10 minutes though so. <laughs> <laughs> not a problem i'd love to come back
5: and uh, and chat with you and you know give you a little bit more of my uh, my
0: experience oh that would be great we certainly appreciate you uh, being with us on uh, manufacturing talk radio we're going to take a quick commercial break here we'll be back in just a few moments with manufacturing talk radio but thank you to our guest uh, Vincent Tuzio. Uh, Vincent, if people need to get a hold of you, how do they get a hold of you?
5: Uh, my website uh, for the company that I'm currently working for is nipros.ni N I P R O S dot com, and you'll be able to access me there. And my cell phone is nine seven three seven one three six two two one, and happy to assist
0: in any way that I can. That's brave to get out a cell phone number. Thank you yeah, very absolutely. much, Vincent. And we'll be right back. Thank, Thank you,
3: you Vincent. Vincent. Welcome back to Manufacturing Talk Radio.
0: Welcome back, everyone, to Manufacturing Talk Radio. We are at NetLight Stadium. I'm here with my co-host, Lou Wise. We're uh, hanging out with CFO Studios, putting on a terrific event here. We're also hanging out with where the Jets and the Giants play on uh, on Sunday. So uh, we are excited to be here. Um Lou, uh,
1: how you find this event? This is pretty neat stuff. This is pretty neat stuff. It's uh, very unusual. I'm trying to figure out how MFG Talk Radio can pull this off. <laughs> yeah,
0: that's right. Uh, we'd love to have an event of this size in the very near future. Um, we're talking to some of the uh, financial people who are here to give our listener base uh, some di- kind of a different flavor of things that they should be aware of as they kind of walk through and expand and grow their businesses. And we have Mark Toriello with us. Uh, Mark, I'm going to let you explain to our listeners uh, what company you're with and what you do for them.
6: Okay, Tim. Um, thanks for having me on. We appreciate it. A pleasure. Uh, we are the Alliance Group. We're out of uh, Red Bank, New Jersey. And uh, basically, we are risk management and insurance placement experts. Um, a little while back, I or quite a while back, I read an article uh, by Jack Welch that said that if you are not consistently contributing to your client's ability to stay competitive, you're not doing your job. So, we take a a bit of a different approach with regards uh, to our approach to uh, risk management and uh, insurance placement.
0: Talk to me a little bit about your approach to risk management and explain to our listeners really what risk management is because it's a pretty broad brush stroke.
6: Well, basically, um, the way we see risk management is it's the other side of the equation. Most Professionals within insurance or uh, even some CFOs focus on the price. We focused on, uh, focus on the expense. So it's all of the other corollary items that may be um, influencing or increasing your risk, um, such as hiring practices, uh, loss prevention, injury management, uh, or just a few of those items.
0: Okay. And when you're saying hiring practices and risk management, uh, kind of flesh that out for me a little bit. That's a little unusual.
6: Sure. So um, let me uh take a couple of steps back. Um, Our approach is uh, profit retrieval and preservation, and in trying to keep consistent with our value proposition, which is to uh, uh, bring about insurance solutions on a continual basis that increase our clients' uh, uh, competitive edge and profitability, we basically, um, our entree point is through the workers' compensation uh, insurance. Mm -hmm. So, we will take a look at um, an insurance experience modification rating. So on every, just about every worker's comp policy, there's a rating that reflects your losses. It also gives you an indication as to how you stand up in relation to uh, peers of your size and a number of other factors. So uh, we take a look at that experience mod rating, and we identify what the minimum experience mod rating is for our clients because it's individual to each client, and a lot of times CFOs are not even aware of this item.
0: I read somewhere in looking over some of the things that you do that you help companies recapture profits that are trapped in their
6: insurance. Can you explain that a little bit? Sure. So an easy enough way to do it would be to take a look at um, an insurance policy that's costing uh, uh, someone about $100,000. And if they had an experience mod of, let's say, a .90, which is a factor taken times uh, that $100,000, because they had a .90 positive uh, loss experience, they're actually going to pay 90000 instead of $100,000 on, uh, on that, on that uh, policy. Uh, what we look at is not only where they are now, but where they could be with zero claims. So a lot of people think mm. that if they have a 10% credit, they're doing pretty good until we identify for them that with zero claims, their experience mod could be a 0.50 or 0.60. Is this something that the, the client should know about?
1: or is this something that you advise them on?
6: Um, The client um, generally does not know about it, and we do bring it to their attention. Um, Most people envision workers' compensation, especially guaranteed cost policies or large deductible policies, as being static and black and white. And um, for that reason, a number of agents are not trained to go in and do the due diligence that we are to identify that profit lock. So, again, if you're... Paying a hundred thousand, you have a point nine zero mod. Um, you're you're getting a ten thousand dollar credit at a point six. You're leaving an additional thirty thousand dollars on the table. So,
0: and when you're talking about uh, this point nine and point six, that is really a rating from who? The state?
6: That's a rating put together by the uh, workers' compensation bureaus in uh, various states um, based on the information that's reported to them over a three-year period by the carrier. So um, it's based on your losses and um, uh, reserves that um, the, in, the insurance companies have placed on your policy. And that's another point that we can go in and retrieve money for them because most people actually believe that the most important time in terms of cost savings for them is at expiration when in all actuality it's uh, the six months past their expiration because that's the period of time that their experience mod is being calculated. For the next term, so at that point in time, we go in and take a look at reserves, which count as paid dollars and are calculated into the experience mod and drive it up. And we address those with the uh, claims reps to see if we can get those driven down or closed for you within that six-month time frame. Now, is this
0: a um, a general uh, rating based on the kind of business you are in, or is it a rating specific to your company?
6: It's a rating that's specific to your company, although it does take into account a number of items, um, such as um, how your, your losses are uh, occurring in relation to others within your peer group. So actual losses versus uh, what, they ass- uh, what your assessed losses are.
0: Okay. Okay. Now, you also talk about claims management. What's that component of this?
6: Claims management goes back to um, really um, what I call the uh, forgotten stepchild of workers' compensation (laughs) or risk management, which is uh, injury management. And uh, basically, uh, a number of people are under the misconception that the the insurance company will direct you to the uh, appropriate doctors, and those those doctors must all be well-trained in uh, uh, labor-related injuries, uh, when in fact... Uh, we find that there are a number that uh, are not uh, board-certified occupational health physicians. So what we'll set about to do is to, um, is to review their current care providers and make sure that they are providing the right care to their in- employees so that they get them back to work and that we can return them to work on an early return-to-work basis as well, which drives down their premiums.
1: Mark, where does uh, product uh, liability insurance come into play uh, being that we're dealing with manufacturers uh, and their their manufacturing product and guarantees and so on with their customers
6: so product liability is on the uh, flip side of uh, workers' comp it's in the package policy usually uh, can be uh, put together with your property and liability and basically um, the product liability is designed to cover you in the event that your product should uh, cause bodily injury or property damage to a third party out in the uh, general marketplace, and as a result, you're uh, sued as a result of that.
1: My understanding about product uh, liability insurance is that the the uh, insurance rate can uh, varies considerably considering the what the products are used for. For example, if somebody's manufacturing uh, babo soap, if it's even it still exists anyway. <laughs> I've never
6: heard uh, of that
1: one. Versus uh, somebody who's making an aircraft part that the insurance premiums are vastly different if you can even get them.
6: Yes. So it all goes back to risk, and, and basically the risk with regard to Babo, who I've never heard of, but I... Uh, I showed my age. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um,
6: as they compare to um, Gulfstream in terms of uh, their manufacturing process, there is a heck of a lot more risk uh, with regard to what uh, Gulfstream may be putting in their uh, airplanes that could potentially fail and cause uh, bodily injury or property damage.
1: In a, in a situation with, like, Gulfstream, would they have to become certified to be insurance-worthy?
6: Um, no certification process really exists. It's a matter of, um, act, you know, taking a look at their loss history and their uh, safety management within their operation to determine whether or not they're doing the right things to prevent losses, and if losses do occur, whether they have the right metrics set up in order to um, mitigate those claims. Hmm. Interesting. Thank you,
0: uh, Tim. If I'm sorry, uh, Mark. If someone wants to get a hold you're of Tim. you or your you thing, <laughs> yeah. um, we had uh, a guest on by the name of Tim. Uh, Mark. Uh, if someone wants to get a hold of you or your company, what's the website address?
6: So our website is uh, www.t is in Tom, a is in Apple, g as in Girl, W C. Dot com tagwc.com where they can reach me by phone at seven three two six one four nine
0: two three one great another another courageous person who's giving out his phone number over the air to that's uh, a cell
6: phone to our
0: <laughs> to our six figure number of listeners out there so uh, we're excited to have you on the show mark thank you for sharing this information.
6: Thanks very much, guys. We're going, to take
0: a, we're going to take a quick commercial break, and we will be back with Manufacturing Talk Radio at CFO Studio out at MetLife Stadium in just a few moments. Thank you for listening to Manufacturing Talk Radio today. We will be back next week with a live show where we talk about social media and manufacturers and why you should be involved with a social media program to help get your brand and brand awareness out into the marketplace. Thank you for listening to Manufacturing Talk Radio, and we'll be back with you next Tuesday.
1: This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.